And so let us hear God's word. Romans 2, verse 12. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, the conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. The grass withers, the flower fades, for the word of God endures forever. Amen. As we begin here today, sometimes you'll hear people say or see on TV or something like that about uh, an angel being on one shoulder and a demon being on the other shoulder. Uh, in fact, just this week I heard it twice. <laughs> Once in an animated movie Matthew was watching and once on the radio. Uh, they were debating whether the Steelers or Ravens would win. <laughs> but anyway, um, you know, we, we usually use this image to talk about some kind of internal debate. Right? Are we going to choose to do what is right or are we going to choose to do what is wrong? Well, Paul has some words to say about uh, this internal uh, aspect of who we are here in these verses, and and um, and so uh, I'm going to focus our attention on on these three verses here today. Now, Paul, of course, has been addressing the standard of God's justice. He began this chapter with those who alter the standard in order to convince themselves that they are a good person. Paul then gives us that standard in verses six and following. God judges everyone according to their works. Eternal life for those who do good things and judgment for the wicked. God is impartial in this way. He is just. He judges according to truth. This is a standard that was given at the beginning okay, to Adam and Eve, and that standard has not changed. Now, Paul continues by then addressing those who have God's standard in their hands, you might say. The Jews that, that have the law of Moses, that have this, all the scriptures ultimately. Um, the Gentiles, though, he says, have the standard too. Because God has written his law on the heart of every person, as we just read in the confession. Now, that law is not as precise, it's not as clear, it's more general, but it's the same standard. Whether we are holding it in our hands like this, or we have it on our hearts, the same standard, just one is more clear and more thorough. God requires perfect obedience to this standard. We are to be holy as God as holy. That is the standard. Now, you may remember in verse 12 last week, this kind of the, the general thought he gives us in this section. Verse 13 then, Paul speaks about the Jews, but then he turns immediately to the Gentiles in verses 14 to 16, but then he's going to return to the Jews in verses 17 and following. So last time, you might say, I, I focused on Paul's overall point. Today, let's look a bit more specifically uh, to verse 14, and now bring in also verses 15 and 16 and expand upon these thoughts. So verse 14 then, again it reads, <clears throat> For when Gentiles who do not have the law 
by nature do the things in the law. These, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. All right, now notice how Paul is using the word law in different ways there. His main point is simply this. The Gentiles have not received the law of Moses. They have not been given it in this external kind of way. They can't hold it in their hands. They, they, they haven't heard it read or haven't read it themselves. Now, uh, in the Old Testament, of course, uh, only Israel possessed the law of Moses. Yet, there were some Gentiles who came into contact with the truth. Israel was salt and light, sometimes uh, just, can you say, inadvertently because of what God was doing in them, other times more directly and specifically. But think of when Israel was in Egypt. The Gentiles heard a lot about God's law there, didn't they? They were forced to hear it, you might say. And certainly as Israel would relate to the nations, you could see that. Think of what we've seen in the evening with David living in Philistia for a while. Some of that truth came with him. And the Philistines were exposed to the truth to some degree. Um, now, some of them were exposed to it and accepted it. And we call them proselytes. They were Gentiles who had a full conversion. They joined Israel. They were circumcised, keep the, the sacrifices and so on. Then there are some other Gentiles who did accept Yahweh and accepted the truth. But uh, they weren't necessarily ones who were circumcised. They didn't do everything, you might say. These are called God-fearers, uh, at least by the time we get to Christ. Um, and so the Gentiles, as Paul says here, are, can you say, a mixed bag? <laughs> some of them did hear the truth to some degree, some more than others, some didn't hear it at all. And so Paul here is, you might say, speaking ultimately, the Gentiles didn't receive it. Some became exposed to it, but they didn't receive it. Israel received it. Now, as we apply these principles to ourselves today, uh, the same distinction can be made with Christians and non-Christians, believers and unbelievers. Those who believe in Jesus have God's word. Okay? We know God's standards specifically. Obviously, we know about Christ, too. And, and there's some Varying degrees here. Some Christians have more understanding than others. But nevertheless, we have the Word of God. Non-Christians, uh, there's also a variety here, aren't there? There are some people who grew up in the church but have left the church. They are non-Christians. They are Gentiles in that sense. They are unbelievers, but they know the standard. They heard it growing up, but they left for some reason. Other people are exposed to the truth more um, indirectly or uh, maybe in certain ways such as uh, uh, maybe a child whose parents don't go to church and don't take them to church but their grandparents or their aunt and uncle go, do go to church so they heard some things uh, maybe they hear something online or when they went to college or they saw a tract at the doctor's office or maybe their neighbor or even Christians impacting the culture there is some impact of the truth of God's law, of God's standard on these Gentiles, these unbelievers, just certainly not as much as those who grew up in the church and rejected it. Uh, but then there are those who've never heard anything. You think of those who grew up in Soviet Russia, 
Some of them never heard much of anything, if anything, about the scriptures. You think of people in that remote uh, culture in the middle of nowhere. Um, But more and more and more in our own culture, in our secular society, there are people who've not heard hardly anything about the scriptures. Um, It may seem very surprising to us, but unfortunately, this is more and more the case. But, you know, whatever distinctions we make, no matter how we subdivide these kinds of ideas, Paul is saying that Gentiles, unbelievers, when they instinctively obey God's law, even if they've never heard God's law at all, okay, they are indicating that they are a law to themselves, he says. Okay? And so when that unbeliever helps the older lady get the groceries into her car, or when the unbeliever is nice to their neighbor, lets them you know, borrow the lawnmower or something, uh, if the unbeliever stands up at work for integrity, no, we can't treat our customer in this way and cut corners. Or if the unbeliever opposes the crazy woke agenda of the alt-left, if the unbeliever is faithful to their spouse or doesn't cheat on a test or right, fill in the blank with any other example, this is proof that they have God's standard. Even if they've never actually read the scriptures. Okay. And so <clears throat> it's not that there are good people. Paul's not saying there's an inherent goodness in all of us. That's not what he's saying. He's saying when people do good things, that's proof that God's law is within them. That's his point. And so when it says these are a law to themselves, he is not talking about autonomy. He's not saying that we can just do whatever we want. That's not his point. His point is when you see an unbeliever doing something good, that's evidence that God's law is in them. They possess God's law, not physically, not externally, but deep within their person. And so that's his his argument here. Now let's bring in the first part of verse 15. Who show the work of the law written in their hearts. It demonstrates this. It's, It's outward proof, as I've said. And so again, even if they don't hold it in their hand... They have it deep in the core of their person. They have God's standard. They know God's standard is love God and love our neighbor. That's a summary of God's law. They have the Ten Commandments, which is a bit more specific, but still it's a summary of God's law. That's written on the heart of every human being, and we all have it, and we all know we must keep it, and we all know we must do it perfectly. And this is seen in everyone, including the Hitlers and Maos and Stalins of the world, including the Fauci's or Klaus Schwab's of the world, or the abortion doctor, or depending on which side you're on here, the Kevin McCarthy's or Matt Gaetz of the world, or the Trump or Biden or whatever, or that person that's harmed you. Even these people, even the most worst, the, the most ungodly people you can think of, when they do something good outwardly, 
This is proof they have the law of God in them. Okay. I am sure that there are abortion doctors out there that have really good relationships with their grandchildren. And maybe that was true of Mao, too, the so-called loving grandfather in China. But, you know, th this shouldn't surprise us. When we're talking about people being sinners, we're not saying that there is nothing good about them. Okay? But when they do something that is good, it is evidence that God has written the law in their hearts. It's not just the virtuous pagan that is sometimes nicer than a professing Christian. It's true of everybody, at least at times. And so when they follow God's law, they are proving that God's law is in them. Again, even if they've never read it. So let's now bring in the rest of verse 15. In some ways, what I've said so far here this morning is a review of what I said last week. But I've been a bit more specific and attacked it, if you will, in a slightly different way. But now the rest of the verse, he says, Their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. All right, now first of all, notice that Paul is using three different terms here. He uses the term heart, and then the word conscience, and the word thoughts. Now, as you might expect, there are many thoughts as to what Paul means in this way, many opinions. Um, but uh, let me just mention one of those. Some people say, well, you remember in the Old Testament, the word heart refers to the whole of the inner person, mind, will, and emotion. It's not just feelings or something, but, but all of who we are inside. Um, I think the problem with this view is uh, that would then lead us to say that Paul is saying unbelievers will consciously say when they do a good thing, I'm keeping God's law. And that's certainly not true. They may have warm feelings when they do something good, but they're not going to consciously say, I'm doing what God has told me to do. So I don't think we can go down that path or any others. I think the best view is this. Heart, in this context, is referring to the essential core of our being. What is it, the, the, the central most point of who we are? This is the God's, God's place of revelation. He's put it inside of us, all the way down at the bottom, if you will. Maybe an analogy will help here. You know, when we talk about our nerves, and I don't mean being nervous, but, you know, our impulses. If you touch something hot, you're going to respond to that, right? We're going to breathe naturally. Our heart's going to beat. We're going to blink our eyes. We don't think about it. These things just happen. It's just there. Now, we can, at times, consciously try not to blink for a little bit. Or not to breathe. We can hold our breath and people can learn to do it for five, six, seven minutes under the, under the water or something like that. Uh, we, we can keep our hand on the stove even though it's really hurting. We can consciously overcome it, but our natural response is to right pull away or to take a breath or to blink our eyes or something like that, right? Well, in a similar way, we can suppress the law that's in us, but it's just naturally there. There's no getting away from it. Okay. And so you might say it's innate, like breathing. 
Now, the word for conscience, then, is, if you will, a step higher in terms of our inner self. It's not all the way down at the bottom like the law, but it's, can you say, at the subconscious level most of the time. This inner voice telling us to do the right thing, the so-called angel on the shoulder. Okay? And so notice how it's testifying to us. The conscience is speaking to us. So this image of an angel and demon and such is not altogether wrong. Okay? There's some truth there. But note the idea is that the conscience is speaking can you say positively, this is what is right. This is consistent with what God has placed deep within us. Okay? And so the conscience is witnessing to ourselves whether or not we are obeying. There's this internal debate. Many times it's just below the surface of our thinking, but sometimes it does rise up to a conscious level. And so the law on the heart is always there. The moral conscience is always there too, acting according to that law. The heart has the law. The conscience, you might say, is the law court or the judge even, rendering a verdict regarding what is right and wrong and telling us if we have done rightly or wrongly. Again, many times this is done at the subconscious level, but there are certainly times when it rises up even more. But again, we're still talking about what's going on inside of us, right? So the third word he gives us here is thought or thoughts, accusing or excusing. This internal debate, right, this innate law, our conscious responding to it, okay, um, there are times that it very much rises to the fully conscious level and we think about it. Now, maybe just for a split second, Okay. Maybe you're walking through the store and you see a shorter person trying to get something up high and they can't reach it. They're just boom like that. Oh, let me help you. Right? You don't even think about it for very long. But you know, right, we're, we're to be loving to our neighbor. That's all the way down at the bottom. Our conscience says, do the right thing, help them. And we immediately think, just again, for a split second, we do it. Other times, though, of course, we can spend days or weeks or months trying to debate what is the right thing and what is the wrong thing. And it's just usually when it's that long, it's because we're trying to debate between good things. Is it right to do this? Or is it right to do that? They're both good in and of themselves, but maybe what's the best thing in my situation? Even Noah, like your mother, you know, what's the best thing? Where's the best place to go uh, in terms of this move? It isn't necessarily a choice between good and evil. Okay. Now, when we tell ourselves that we have done the right thing, that we have a clear conscience, that we have excused ourselves, okay, that's when the law is there, conscience says do this, and we have then obeyed accordingly. But of course, Sometimes we tell ourselves, that was a mistake, that was sin, that was wrong, I shouldn't have done that. Now, on the one hand, Paul is speaking ideally here. He does not talk about the suppressing of the law inside of us in these verses. 
though certainly we do that, right? He does not talk about a seared conscience, though certainly the Bible talks about that too. He does not talk here about how we excuse our sin and convince ourselves that we're not sinning, though we deep down are aware that we are sinning. He talks about that to some degree in verses 1 and following, but not here in these verses. So on the one hand, he's speaking ideally. He doesn't address some of these things that are part of this conversation and this idea. But what he is emphasizing is that every person, every one of us here, everyone that we see out and about, everyone we see on TV or whatever, right? Every person, even the most wicked, have hearts with the law on it, have consciences that tell us to obey that law, and have thoughts that work properly enough to render them without excuse. When Hitler was surrounded and had no escape and killed himself, there are several things that were going on there. But part of it was he knew that his eugenics program against the Jews that his medical experiments against twins and prisoners and the mentally incapacitated and so forth, and, of course, his military aggression, he knew deep down that was wrong. His action at the very end proves that. He explained it away for many years, but in the end, he showed that the law of God was written on his heart too, and he probably heard the truth somewhere along the line in his life, right? When we lie to a teacher or our boss or our spouse or a friend, even when we try to justify it, deep down, we know that we are wrong. That voice in us may be very small, it may be very quiet, but it's still there. Repeated suppression, groupthink, theological justification, Entertainment and distraction, busyness, all these things can drown out our inner moralizer, but it's still there and it's still working, even though we have fallen with Adam. Now, sometimes we need an outside voice to help us to hear, right? David needed Nathan to come to him and tell him about his sin with Bathsheba. Peter needed a rooster to crow to remind him of his sin. Sometimes it's our child pointing out to us our own hypocrisy. Sometimes we need that outside voice. And again, here Paul's speaking of the unbeliever in particular. And so sometimes it's the rules at work, or the policeman sitting at the donut shop, or the comments on your TikTok page or Instagram account exposing your insincerity and duplicity and phoniness. But God uses these outside things to reinforce the inside voice that is there, to reinforce the corrupted conscience to work as it should, and calls us then to keep his standard. This is true for everybody. No one can claim they did not know. Now, last week, you may remember that we looked at Deuteronomy 22. We looked at a few of those verses. Those are the specific laws that God gave in those things. 
Unbeliever doesn't have that. They don't have those specific laws. But they still know. And they still know they're going to be judged accordingly. All right. Let's bring in now verse 16. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. First of all, notice, at least here in the New King James, there's a parenthesis around verses 13 to 15. Your translation may use a dash or some other way to separate these verses. But let me read verses 12 and 16 together. Verse 12, for as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. It fits together perfectly, doesn't it? And so Paul, in some ways, has taken a tangent here and is now coming back to his point and finishing his point. Both Jews and Gentiles, Christians and unbelievers, are going to be judged on the day of judgment. The believer will be judged according to the clear revelation of Scripture, and the unbeliever is going to be judged according to the inner revelation of the law on the heart. We can put it together this way, but notice how verse 13 fits here. The Jew who only trusts in outward religion is going to be judged on the day of judgment, right? Verses 14 and 15, the Gentile who excuses himself and, and uses his thoughts to excuse his behavior, he too is going to be judged on the final judgment. And so it It's not a total parenthesis is what I'm trying to say here. But our point is simply this. God will expose what's going on inside of us. That's been his point here in at least the last uh, couple verses. The, the, The unseen. The things that are deep within us that maybe we don't even understand. God's going to expose all of that. He's going to expose what's going on within the person. Outward righteousness is important, but inward obedience is required. Perfect holiness. And so on the day of judgment, God will make that plain. And God will judge impartially, right? Verse 6, verse 11. God will judge according to the truth, right? Remember back in uh, verse 2. And this will happen on the day of judgment for everyone. Now, let's turn here just a moment to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4, we see the same idea. Verse 12. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now here the author of Hebrews is talking about special revelation, right? And how it is used to expose our inner selves. But notice how he uses it then in the context that God sees everything. And we've got to give an account to him. Now as we come back here to Romans 2, uh, notice... That the next thing that Paul says in verse 16 is that Jesus is going to be doing the judging. Now, we often hear people say that Jesus is so loving 
and accepting of everybody. And even in Sunday school this morning, part of what we saw is that God is love. And, and that's the main thing that we must believe and communicate in someone. Well, he certainly is. Okay. You'll often hear people say, well, you know, Jesus came and, and, and the God of the Old Testament is so mean. And, and, you know, Jesus came and kind of twisted the Father's arm to accept us and so on and so forth. Or we will hear people remaking God according, and Jesus here specifically, according to this latest social gospel thing. Again, as we've seen in, in Sunday school. Um, They'll say Jesus is so tolerant, he's so accepting, he's on the side of the oppressed, and so on. All right, the point is that very few people in our evangelical churches today really talk about Jesus being our judge. But Paul does, it's right here. Jesus is our judge. In fact, he says, my gospel message says this. And it's not just Paul's gospel message, it's the message of all the apostles, of all the prophets. They too say about Jesus being our judge. Let me briefly have us look at a few passages. Let's turn to 2 Timothy and chapter 4. Um, <clears throat> of course, we read chapter 3 earlier. And in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing, and his kingdom. So Jesus is going to judge when he comes back. If you turn to Acts chapter 17, this is when Paul was at um, the Areopagus in Athens. And as he is speaking to Gentiles, in verse 31 says, because he is appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So again, Jesus is judge, Paul says. And it's not just Paul. In John chapter 5, Jesus himself says this. In John 5, it says in verse 22, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Rather striking words there. And then lastly, here in, uh, in Acts chapter 10, this is when Peter <coughs> went to Cornelius' house. And in verse 42, he said, uh, referring to Jesus, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. All right. Well, here's a brief tangent on this point. <laughs> but... Right? Paul's not saying anything new. On the day of judgment, Jesus is the one who will judge. So, when we witness, like Paul, let's make sure this is part of our message. When we are teaching here at church and with our children at home or wherever it is, we must include not merely that Jesus is our priest, not merely that he is our Savior and Redeemer, but also that he is our judge. So Paul's overall point here then is simply this. Okay? God's standard must be kept. It must be kept perfectly. Some people have that standard in their hands or in their ears and eyes. 
Some people don't. But they still have the standard within them. And so God is fair, and God judges everyone by that standard. Now, that's his point here. There's more to say by the time we get to chapter 3, verse 20, and then as he turns to the gospel message. But that's his point here. This is um, Paul's way, you might say, of defending God. God is fair, and everyone is judged by the same standard. All right, now, there are some implications from Paul's words here. And I considered spending separate sermons on some of these implications, but I thought I'd just uh, summarize it here briefly in three thoughts. The first one is something that I've already addressed, and that was in chapter 1. When we are witnessing to the unbeliever, we must challenge them with the knowledge they already have. Now meet them where they are, but bring them back to the knowledge and expose it because they already have been given it, right? Chapter one, everyone knows God exists. Everyone knows lots of different things about the true and living God. And now here, Paul says, everyone knows the law of God. There's no exception. So when we are speaking to an unbeliever, we may start at first base using the image I gave before and talk to them there you have to come back to home plate and say, look, this is how we get knowledge. This is how we understand reality. This is how we understand everything. We've got to begin at the beginning. And that's what Paul's talking about here, at least in part, in chapters 1 and 2. And so there is no neutrality in our witnessing. There are no atheists. There is no one who is ignorant and does not know. So let's witness consistently with these ideas and not undermine the very thing we're trying to prove in our witnessing. Now, another implication, and that is psychology. Sometimes you hear among Christians the idea that psychology is just a secular thing. That's what unbelievers talk about, okay? and certainly that is true. Hey, you have the, the psychological community, obviously following in the footsteps of Freud and so on and so forth, okay? but that doesn't mean the psychology is an unbiblical practice. Paul is giving us principles here for the discipline of psychology, the study of the soul. We've just spent verses 14 and 15, where Paul is talking about the inner person. That's what psychology is. Now, we certainly can debate, um, should we be on the nuthetic end of biblical counseling? Or should we be the, on the end of the secular approach? Or should we be somewhere in the middle in various ways, combining both in certain degrees? Okay, we can debate that, and we're not going to get into that today. But the point is, Okay. The study of the soul is an important thing. And in many ways, it has to be led by the church. It can't be led by the secularists. Because they're going to suppress the truth and they're going to give, get, uh, lead you in all kinds of wrong directions. This is our understanding. right? This is the study of the soul. Paul's giving us, if you will, a blueprint 
a foundation for these ideas. You know, when I was in seminary, one of my professors, Knox Chamblin, had written a book called Paul and the Self. And he was basically making the point in Paul's teachings for the importance of psychology. He didn't really get into the debate of whether it's neuthetic or relationalists or whatever, but he's just saying, hey, this is a legitimate study for us, and we as Christians should be leading the way in it. Hey, if you go to a counselor, okay, <clears throat> it's, it's got to be influenced by Christian thought. So <clears throat> that is a huge topic, but just addressing it briefly. The last one I wanted to address here briefly is... Um, Something that John Stott said, I want to use his words to guide us here. <clears throat> he said this, The possibility of securing justice in society is another legitimate deduction from Paul's teaching in these verses, even though it is not part of his direct purpose in the context. What he is saying is that the same moral law which God has revealed in Scripture, he also stamped on human nature. Since he has, in fact, written his law twice, internally as well as externally, it is not to be regarded as a foreign system which we impose on people arbitrarily and which is altogether unnatural to expect human beings to obey. Now, let me pause here a moment. Stott wrote this in 1994, and he wrote, of course, over in Great Britain. These are the very things we're hearing in our culture today that we can't impose the Ten Commandments on a secular society. We can't impose God's law from the Bible on a secular society. We have to separate church and state, right? But Stott is saying that that, that, that makes no sense. He continues, On the contrary, there is a fundamental correspondence between the law and Scripture and the law and human nature. God's law fits us. It is the law of our own being. We are authentically human only when we obey it. When we disobey it, we not only rebel against God, but we're also contradicting our true selves. In every human community, therefore, there is a basic recognition of the difference between right and wrong and an accepted set of values. True, conscience is not infallible, and standards are influenced by cultures and sin. Nevertheless, a substratum of good and evil remains, and love is acknowledged as superior to selfishness. Though, of course, that can be redefined. This has important social and political implications. It means that legislators and educators can assume that God's law is good for society, and that at least to some degree, everyone knows that. It is not a case of Christians trying to force their standards on an unwilling public, but of helping the public to see that God's law is for our own good at all times. Because it is the law of human being and of human community. Okay. And so, if I could word it differently, <clears throat> Jesus said to be salt and light. And what often happens in our evangelical circles is we say, okay, we need to witness to people. We're going to be salt and light by witnessing, by sharing the gospel. And that's true. But it's more than that. We must influence society with the truth 
so that society, so that we can love our neighbor, is all part of this. And again, right, we're not imposing anything. We're helping them to see what they already know. The founding fathers of our country had a lot of baggage and sin, but they understood this point. They understood that the law of God is known by everyone. And if we keep it, it's going to bless everybody. But we are now living in a culture that says, no, we don't want the law of God. We don't want the Ten Commandments posted in our courtrooms. And we don't want you to impose your law on us. We want to do our own thing. But if we're going to be salt and light, we're going to say, well, no, this is actually better. Far better for you if you keep God's law. And it's because we love you as our neighbor, we're going to insist on it. This is not being political. It's applying God's word in all of, all of life. <clears throat> Let me say it now in a third way. Historically, <coughs> excuse me, we have talked about the three uses of the law. Can anybody list off the three uses of the law? <coughs> As I'm coughing here a moment. <coughs> excuse me. That wind was really cold at the soccer game yesterday. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> All right, the three uses. The first one is that God's law is used as a tutor to lead us to Christ. What is usually called the third use of the law is that God's law is used by the believer to guide us into all righteousness. This is how God wants us to live. But what is usually called the second use of the law is that God's law is used to restrain evil in society. This is part of our Reformed heritage. And we in the Reformed community are forgetting this point, unfortunately. And this is what Stott is talking about. Okay. If the law of God is written on the heart of every single human being, okay, then they know what is right and wrong deep down, and let's insist on that. Let's make it part of public policy. Let's make it part of, uh, of our educational system. Let's make it part of everyday life. Let's not hole up in our Christian ghetto, so to speak, and just let the world go on its own way. No, Jesus says you can't do that. So again, <clears throat> Paul's main point is what we've been talking about. But do you see there's some very important implications here of Paul's teaching in these verses. So, <clears throat> a few thoughts today. And uh, Lord willing, next time, we will continue verses 17 and following. Let's pray together. <clears throat> our Father and God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that um, you know and see things that we don't. And that is the very core of our being, what's going on within us. As Jeremiah said, the heart is, is deceitful and wicked. Who can know it? Well, you do. And we are thankful that you have given us passages like this to help us to know what is within us. And, and we thank you here especially that your law has been placed within. And you have given us a conscience that 
will seek to obey that law. And even in our fall, even in our, our, our sin and our wickedness, that, that hasn't gone away completely. And we are thankful for that, Lord. And so, Lord, we um, do pray then that you would help us <clears throat> as your people, that you would help us then in this uh, implication of psychology, in this implication of our witnessing and, and apologetics, and in uh, this implication then of living in society, as Paul told Titus in chapter 3, that we must uh, live in ways that impact those around us for truth. And so, Lord, we pray that you would work in us by your Spirit and that you would be honored in all of these things. And so we pray then in Jesus' name. Amen.